This is the Human Action Podcast with your hosts, Jeff Deist and Dr. Bob Murphy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to this week's episode of the Human Action Podcast. I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Dr. Robert Murphy. How are you doing, Bobby? I'm doing all right, Jeff. How are you? Well, yeah, I've got one of my favorite ties on today, and I feel as though it gives me superpowers of a kind, <laughs> of a limited kind, let's just say. Um, I know you and I talked offline. I want to set this up a little bit for our audience. We recently had a conference, a, an annual a research conference here at the Mises Institute. One of our speakers this year was a very interesting gentleman named Alex Pollock. He is new to the Mises Institute, one of our senior fellows, and he comes from a very long, many decades background in commercial banking after which he was at AEI in Washington, D.C., and also R Street. So he's been writing for our site. And he delivered a speech, which we will link to, about how the Fed has become uh, the biggest de facto savings and loan in the world. And in particular, what he meant by that was that they own lots and lots of mortgages and mortgage-backed securities. So, Bob, I want to start by just bringing up a couple of the facts he pointed out. It was really pretty shocking when he put the Fed into this kind of perspective. Mm -hmm. It's the kind of things that you, you might know or you might suspect, but when he frames it historically, it, it really is unprecedented and, from my perspective, very worrisome. Uh, so, first of all, he points out that the Fed owns almost $3 trillion in mortgages and mortgage-backed securities flat out on its balance sheet. It never owned any mortgages prior to the 2007 crisis, by the way. That's about uh, almost 25% of all U.S. mortgages are owned by the Fed, uh, which constitutes about 30% of the Fed's balance sheet. So it's not just treasuries on there. So that's, I think, noteworthy. And also that if you throw in Fannie and Freddie, which are the two big government-sponsored enterprises, uh, they guarantee about another $8 trillion in U.S. mortgage debt. So I, I think when we're talking about housing, we have to understand that this is not a standard marketplace. This is a marketplace which is dominated by the Fed and these two GSEs. Well, yeah, there's that. And it, you're right, Jeff. I had a sort of it was it was shocking when he put it that way because i i knew the figures ballpark as terms of mortgage-backed securities and whatever but yeah i was more looking at it in terms of disrupting and you know oh that's that's bad policy and so forth but yeah just to stop and think there there is a sense in which the federal government and the central bank you know control or, or own a huge portion of of the real estate in the united states like that it is sort of moving towards uh, Klaus Schwab's "You'll own nothing and be happy." You know, <laughs> they'll get they'll get half of it. So that that is an interesting way way of thinking about it. And so yeah, I was surprised. Um, I should also mention too, um, and, I, and I touched on this in the my money mechanics book for you guys that uh, the way that it's not merely that what the Fed's been doing since two thousand eight is is not it's not something they did before, but it's arguably illegal that the fed's not supposed to own certain types of securities and so what they did my understanding is and i had a you know a law review article that went through this stuff not mine i'm saying i cited one that they set up those maiden lane corporations llc's so technically the fed would loan money because they can lend money to whoever they want would lend money to the maiden lane llc's and then they would go and buy you know the mortgage-backed securities and whatever so it was interesting that not only is it bad economically it's arguably not even according to the statutory authority of what they were doing since then. But, hey, nobody cares because they're saving the world. Well, one thing he points out in the talk is that 
Um, housing prices basically went down from about 2007 to 2012. That We call that the great financial crisis. Uh, but since 2012, they've been going up. And that today, they're actually even adjusted for inflation higher than they were in 2006. So, you know, we hear this term bubble all the time. It's tricky. It's timing. Bubbles can go on and on. Bob, could you define a bubble? How would economists define a bubble in a market? Well, it's interesting. So let me take the moment to distinguish the Austrians from the Chicago school. So uh, there are certain Chicago school type economists who, who will say the term bubble means nothing. All it means is, oh, after the fact, when, when prices had been real high and they come down and everyone says, oh, see, it was a bubble. Okay. And they will argue that's not meaningful because prices go up and, you know, they depending on who you're talking to, they believe in a random walk, that kind of thing, efficient markets. And so, you know, they will say, no, bubble is just this old wives tale. It doesn't mean anything because half the time, you know, you, you think it's a bubble. It's going to keep going up. And their logic is, hey, if we all knew it was a bubble, we'd all short it and then it would drop. So it wouldn't be a bubble. You know, that's that's the kind of thing. So to me, though, what I think a bubble, you know, is more in line with the regular person and even, you know, people on Wall Street who, who try to identify bubbles and, and so forth as part of their job is that, yeah, it's, it's what certain assets could be over over uh, valued and, you know, above the fundamentals, as it were. You know, you come up with with there's ways of sort of gauging what should these assets be valued at in terms of fundamentals and if it's way above that, you'd say, oh, it's a bubble. And there's, re- you know, it, it can be self-sustaining in the sense that if everybody thinks everyone's going to buy more tomorrow and the price is going to go up, it makes sense to bid up the price today. So they can do that. But the idea is once it becomes unmoored, once there really aren't fundamentals supporting it, well, then it could pop at any time. And it's hard to identify when. And so, yeah, I would ex- say, look, there were plenty of economists who before the housing bubble collapsed said, this is a bubble. It's not going to last. And then when it when it did collapse, you know, the Chicago school type said, oh, you guys just got lucky or, mm-hmm. yeah, if you keep saying bubble, eventually it'll come true. So, you know, there is that element involved and you have to be careful about confirmation bias. But I but I think, you know, we're not merely saying, oh, the price is high. We we have reasons to suppose it's above, again, fundamentals, however you want to define that. Maybe we can get into that. But also we have the Austrian business cycle theory. The central bank mm-hmm. has been doing things to pump up asset prices so we shouldn't be shocked to then say, oh, the asset prices are higher than they otherwise would have been. I mean, that's that's partly why they're doing what they're right. doing. They're claiming we're supporting the markets. So we can't then turn around and say, oh, they have no effect on anything. Right. And maybe for our purposes, that's the distinction, whether something is supported by the fundamentals, what we think of the fundamentals of supply and demand versus monetary policy. That's how we distinguish a bubble. Not so easy, of course. But I, so I want to throw out some stats that might suggest it's not. Uh, a lot of the listeners might know I host a radio show once a week in the Tampa Bay area of Florida. That's basically Hillsborough and Pinellas counties down there. They have seen some of the fastest rising housing prices and also fastest rising rents in the whole country. So a few things are different this time around versus like 06 when a lot of people thought things were frothy in housing, and there were a lot of warning signs out there, but a lot of people got hurt very badly and ended up upside down in homes. Uh, Some of you might know that scene in The Big Short, where Michael Scott's character goes down to Florida to, uh, I know his name's not Michael Scott, Steve Carell, uh, goes down to Florida, and they they talk to these kind of sleazy mortgage broker guys who are constantly hanging around strip clubs and everything, and these strippers have five condos and 
And so, you know, they come, they come back from that trip and you know, immediately start shorting the market. So the lending standards today for houses are definitely not as wild, wild west as they were in the mid-2000s. There's, they were doing what they call ninja, no income, just ask me uh, loans. People weren't really documenting, documenting their income. People were borrowing many, many, many multiples of their, of their annual household income. So things are not like that. Lenders, lending standards are tighter today. Um, but I got to tell you, for for people in Tampa Bay, especially renters, you you come along with these forty percent rent hikes, thirty percent, twenty percent rent hikes. For a lot of people, this is basically an eviction notice. I mean, mm-hmm. they're going to have to move, I guess, farther out or to a poor neighborhood or something like that. So this is this is a real problem. Um, but what's so strange about this? Uh, obviously, we haven't built enough houses since the crash of 0708. That, we all know that. America's vast. Okay, we're, we're not running out of space. We, we need to get past this zoning ridiculousness. We, we need to build houses. Uh, and some people are just going to have to accept that places like Manhattan and the beautiful peninsula of San Francisco and Beverly Hills, I mean, some places are finite and fixed geographically. You can't, we can't all live there. That's just the way it goes. You might have to go live in Riverside, folks, uh, or you might have to go live in Kansas. Uh, especially these younger people starting out. But here's what I don't get. Since COVID, the U.S. population, whether through birth rates, which are declining, or through in-migration, immigration, it's the lowest it's been since the founding of our country, the rate of growth. In in 2021, the U.S. population grew by 0.1%. So that's unprecedented. So there's not all this population growth on the demand side for housing. Now, we all know we had huge relocations during COVID. People were moving to places like Phoenix and Boise and Austin and Florida. We, we know that. And we also know that they were leaving in huge numbers, San Francisco, Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, New Jersey. We know that. But someone's buying those houses they're leaving, and those markets haven't really gone down that much. That's what's so um, – strange about this is, is are people buying second homes? I mean, where, where is all this money coming from? Because when someone moves, most of us, most mortals, we have to sell the house we were in. Mm. Right. So I know that this was true during the, uh, the previous housing boom and bust. And that was partly why you could like point to things that weren't the fundamentals that like vacancy rates and, and things like that. So, so yes, if to like, what would be some telltale signs of a speculative bubble as opposed to just Hey, people really like houses more than they did, you know, two years ago or something, and and yeah, so that that would be one me- measures you could look at what the vacancy rate is. Um, I know that went up significantly, like I say, back in like oh four, oh five, oh six, um, and and so you know, just as it sounds, and and there were anecdotes too, like Doug French would would tell me he you know had horror stories of like some retired cop from Michigan who would take his whole pension and put it into into five houses in Las Vegas, and that didn't work out too well for him, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so it's there is that that element as well, but also um, Jeff, it's you, you've probably heard people talk about that there there is this phenomenon now where a lot of the purchases now are not by in you know families moving into the home, but they're by these institutional buyers, presumably for speculative reasons. And you know, so I don't know if it's like BlackRock or somebody comes in. I guess Warren Buffett. People are saying Bill Gates is buying up a lot of farmland and things, and so. You know, just to do the the quick economics of that again, 
in this politically connected and the cronyism system, it's, it's not a true free market. Don't get me wrong. But in terms of the logic of it, that per se is not a bad thing that, you know, some, some hedge fund or some institutional money manager wants to buy real estate. And if they're, you know, temporarily put up the price, they're, they're doing it presumably because they think the price is going to be higher down the road. So if they're mm -hmm. correct, if they did buy low and sell high, they've actually helped, you know, smooth the, the, the adjustment process. They pushed up prices when they're relatively low so that they're actually not zooming up as much down the road. And if they're wrong, well, then they lose money. So the, the market has a built-in, you know, mechanism. If they're buying and feeding a bubble, when the bubble bursts, then, you know, they're caught with their pants down. But, th but again, that all emphasizes or underscores the, the necessity that the government and the Fed needs to just stand back and mm -hmm. let these buyers take losses. If you bail them out, so if they make money on the upside, if they're right in their speculative bets, and then if they, if the, if they get caught and there's a crash and you bail them all out because, oh, they're too big to fail, well, then that kind of defeats the purpose. So, you know, here it's, it's more of a theoretical point, but yeah, in a genuine free market, the fact that these institutional buyers are coming in and might make homes unaffordable for the regular guy in certain markets, that per se wouldn't be a bad thing because, you know, profit and loss would discipline mm -hmm. them and they, they would actually be doing something socially useful. But yes, in the current environment where the feds is openly admitting, oh, we're supporting the housing market by what we're doing. And the, the facts that, um, you know, Alex brought up oh, in his talk yeah. that, that, that distorts everything. So yes, piled on top of everything else is these buyers are making it harder for regular people to get in and get homes because so many of these new sales, I mean, you've probably heard the anecdotes that like people come in, will bid 10,000 over the asking price and they won't get it yeah. because somebody else came in and bid even yeah. more. So, so clearly something is screwy here. And it, like I say, this is not from genuine market forces, unfortunately. Well, I really feel for 20 something starting out because if you're trying to save for a down payment, you know, you're trying to save five or $10,000 a year, you make $40,000, you're an average person. And of course, here's the thing is we know what works. Now, this isn't necessarily, you know, it's not for us to dictate to the market how mortgages ought to be arranged, but we know what works. What works in terms of low defaults is 20% down for a house and not borrowing more than, let's say, three or at the outside four times household income. So if you make $40,000 a year, you ought to be buying a condo or a townhouse that's $120,000, $150,000 a year, and you ought to be putting, let's say, 30000 down. Okay, we know that those lending standards work. We know that historically that's worked. Uh, if you go back to our grandparents, for example, the, uh, mortgages were were not, not 30 years. Mortgages were generally 10, 15 mm -hmm. years. They often had a balloon payment at the end. So your grandparents were, are, are in the middle. So your grandparents would save up. And so that was very, very different. Now, obviously, we've, we've, you know, we've teased this out. We're, we're torturing ourselves. We've got you know, 60, 70-year-old baby boomers getting 30-year mortgages, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so that's kind of crazy. Um, but I mean, part of it is we can't all live in Miami Beach. We can't all live in Tampa Bay unless we're just going to build high-rises to the moon. I mean, there are geographic limits on some of these places. So that, that explains part of it. Uh, as to this, these sort of apocryphal stories about institutional buyers snapping up uh, single-family residences during depressions or during down, down times, I, I looked into that a little bit. It's kind of difficult, Bob, because 
the, the data on who owns houses is, is generally county by county at the recorder's office. And sometimes that's a bit opaque because even individuals, but certainly businesses will create LLCs and the LLC mm-hmm. will be the listed owner. So you can't always tell it's, it's Joe and Jane Smith or whatever. But it, it looks like BlackRock and some of these other organizations have been buying fewer than advertised. So it's not quite uh, what we think. And Zillow, you know, the, the uh, online real estate browsing company, Zillow, they tried to get in this game for a while, and they were buying houses and then selling them to institutional buyers. But I guess the question becomes, and this is where we talk about economic efficiency and markets, and we also talk about the intangibles of of homeownership, uh, connection to a neighborhood, or uh, caring about the, the, you know, the crime, or the Little League ballpark, or the local school district. Uh, caring about your neighbors or whether things are getting dilapidated, whether yards are being mowed. I mean, these there are some intangible, non-purely economic benefits to home ownership as opposed to renting that are hard to measure. And uh, we shouldn't dismiss those. I, I don't like, I personally don't like the idea of, you know, Americans all live in these uh, houses which are owned by conglomerates or professional landlords mm-hmm. or whatever. But um, the percentage of people who rent in America versus own was going up even before COVID, but it's really gone up during COVID. It's about 36% now. Uh, we, we, do know, we do have a couple models here to look at. We have Germany and Switzerland in particular. In Switzerland, something like 70% of all Swiss rent. And in Germany, it's, it's, it's over half. It's about 54%. Uh, there's a lot of reasons behind this. Uh, some of that goes back to World War II and, and after all the destruction in Germany, the government got involved in building government housing and that sort of lent itself to more of a rental atmosphere. There's also huge costs, uh, very expensive to own a home versus rent in uh, Germany and Switzerland. Some countries like Switzerland, Bob, actually, actually tax you on the imputed rent from your mm-hmm. assets. So, you know, if you go out and buy a treasury bond, and that, you know, that pays you interest. Well, of course, you pay tax in the United States or anywhere else on that. But the idea here is that if, if you're financing an asset like a home with equity, then the average monthly rent ought, ought to be viewed as income to you, uh, w- which is interesting. If you finance it with debt, presumably you can, like here in the United States, you can uh, deduct from your taxes the interest expense on those payments. I, I'm not exactly sure how that happens in Switzerland. So we have a, a, a more of a bias in both our tax code on the deduction side and on the income, the taxation side. We have a bias more in favor of home ownership here. And, and I think we know that the realtors and these people have probably been very active in lobbying over the years to make home ownership part of the American dream. And I, and I do agree with that. I do like that. I think it creates a, a citizenry which is more invested uh, when you actually own something, you know, we want people mm-hmm. to have capital of their own. We don't want everyone to just be sort of a, a, a feudal functionary. But but what I can't figure out and what's so different from 06 is that, you know, when Doug French is talking about guys buying a bunch of condos in Vegas foolishly at the at the peak, um, you know, it was the, the, the difference in your monthly payment between purchasing and renting a similar house or, or unit was far more different than it is today. Uh, mm-hmm. Rents have risen so much quicker. So if I were to sell the house I'm in right now um, and go rent 
in in I, I live in Auburn, Alabama. My my monthly rent for an equivalent house would be far higher than my mortgage. And it's not just the fact that my mortgage is you know a few years old or whatever. It, it's so that's that's I, I don't understand um, the balance between rents and mortgages. And and so I guess if we are in a bubble, I think it's a very different kind of bubble than '06. Right. So that's a good point. And um, and yeah, I was not aware of that Swiss tax treatment until you brought that up. Um, so yeah, when, in terms of what we said earlier, like you could come up with fundamentals and, you know, things, rough rules of thumb just to kind of get a ballpark estimate. And that is one of the things Look, so I mentioned, you know, the vacancy rate would be one thing. Like if, if that's going way up, then that's kind of a sign that, oh wait, these people are buying for speculative reasons. But yeah, another one is the the mismatch between the, the rents and the, because if, you're right. If it really is just a genuine, fundamentally driven increase in the demand for housing, whether because of you know immigration or or whatever population growth or just for whatever reason, people just want to have more space, and so that you know they're willing mm-hmm. to pay more for bigger homes. Then, like you say, that you would expect that to also drive up the you know the market clearing rate for rental prices for equivalent properties. So there would always be that gap there, but you know you you would expect them to move in tandem. Whereas you're right in the previous bubble. The, the purchase price zoomed way up, whereas the rents lagged behind it. So again, that was you know some indication that this was more speculative than this time around. So th- that is an interesting uh, quirk, and it's you know it, it's hard to identify exactly what's. I think some of it is because some of this frothiness now really is because of the in migration. Like there really are a lot of people who are trying to relocate across the country now. You know, p- perhaps because of COVID issues or whatnot. Um, so that that might be part of what's what's driving that. Let me just mention because you you brought up the things like the the liar loans and stuff like that. Because mm-hmm. I back in you know a, after the last crash, I went in and just was trying to understand you know no ideology, just like what's what's going on. Why would why would a bank give a mortgage to someone when they know the guy's lying about his income on the application? Like you know they just trying to figure that out. I think part of it was because. In that environment, when when home prices were going up, you know, fifteen percent a year, and it seemed like clockwork, the bank, you know, the originator of that mortgage didn't really mind, you know, because worst case, the guy defaults, and then we just take the the house, and it's you know, the collateral has has risen in value, so we're fine. And then also too, those originators would sell the mortgages off, you know, to some other entity that that would then package them up and you know, put them into a mortgage-backed security or whatnot. And so then, you know, that sort of pushes back the problem once up, okay, well, why did those other institutions buy them up if they knew they were dodgy mortgages? You know, didn't they have some kind of quality control? And mm-hmm. again, the people would say, oh, well, it's because they were slicing and dicing it and selling it off to, you know, foreign institutional buyers who wanted to get exposure to the real estate market, but not own actual individual properties. So they wanted, you know, had some asset that was like one thousandth of a piece of a mortgage from a diff- thousand different mortgages across the country. So they thought they were well diversified. But even there, it just pushes back. Okay, so why did they do? Well, why, why did those foreign institutional buyers act so dumb? And it's well, the ratings agencies signed off on these things, and they said they were AAA. And so finally, though, you you do get to government intervention, which if which you know, Austro libertarians like to know what's going on. And and so I think that's part of what happened is after what happened when a bunch of those ratings, you know, S and P, um, Moody's, and so forth, when they're given AAA ratings to things that in retrospect were a lot riskier than that designation suggested you think they should have lost market share if it not gone out of business, but they didn't. And that's partly because there's all sorts of government regulations and fed regulations about, you know, certain types of institutions need to hold 
capital of these ratings and so and, mm-hmm. and so you need to have ratings for these bonds and so forth to know what their risk is and you can't just say oh yeah my brother-in-law said this was double a it's like no when, when the regulations say these need you need to hold at least you know bonds of this quality there's got to be some way of determining you know oh who's an acceptable rater and so that's partly how the ratings agencies had their market sort of institutionally locked in or regulatorily if that's an adverb locked in um, so even after they screwed up on this one, they didn't get punished the way you might normally expect. So again, a lot of these things, there should have been a huge reckoning once the crash happened. And a lot of that was was muted because of various government regulations. So that's partly you know, why this thing was such an anomaly. Well, there should have been a reckoning, especially for the rating agencies themselves. And I got to recommend The Big Short to people. If you haven't seen this movie, I mean, first of all, Christian Bale, any any movie he's in is worthwhile. But but the filmmaker has these little vignettes where they sort of stop action and they have these other people come on and explain something like a CDO, a collateralized debt obligation. So it's, it's very interesting the way they made the film. And it's actually very informative about what was going on during that time. But you know, when we talk about the economics, there's, there's also, as I mentioned earlier, the, the cultural effects of all this. I mean, on the one hand, we enjoy a greater degree of labor mobility in the United States than a lot of people do in Europe, for example. Uh, it's a big country. We all speak one language. So it's very common for us to have a friend or, or acquaintance say, oh, I got a new job in Dallas, Texas. I'm moving next week. I mean, that's mm-hmm. very common here. We don't think much about that. Now, after the crash of 06 and 07, a lot of people were stuck in houses mm-hmm. very upside down. And maybe they lost their job outright, or maybe they would have liked to leave their job, but they felt like they couldn't move because in order to, to do so, given the, the plummeting housing prices, they'd have to write a big check to their mortgage holder to, you know, to walk away. And of course, some people just sent in their keys and said, screw it, I'm not paying. Uh, and I'll, I'll deal with the, I guess, the consequences to my credit rating for a while. Uh, and then some people actually stayed in their houses for a long time, two, three years without making payments, because the banks, which had end up ultimately been stuck with those mortgages, didn't want to mark them to market mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, they might be insolvent, something like a Countrywide, which was forced to sell itself to B&A. If Countrywide had been forced to mark to market, or if B of A had been forced right after the crash in acquiring Countrywide, basically under duress from Congress, if they had been required to mark to market at that point in time, the true market value of all those mortgages they'd purchased, B of A, B of A folks might have been insolvent. So this was a lot of this was accounting. Uh, Alex Pollock points that out in his talk, which if, if you get some time this weekend, I recommend you you listen to. But the, the other thing I think that we want to point out when it comes to housing is we are in completely unprecedented times with respect to interest rates. So I got this little chart here from Fred, the St. Louis Bank Fed's website. Lots of charts. You, you can manipulate them and print them out. So this is the 30-year fixed mortgage rate average in the United States. <laughs> so you go back to the 70s and mortgages were, you know, 7.5%, 10%. And then you get into the late 70s, into the early 80s during Paul Volcker's tenure. And about 81, 82, the average 30-year mortgage rate was up over 18%. And then, of course, you know, you bring in Alan Greenspan, late 80s, and then by about 1990, they've basically been plummeting 
ever since. And by the COVID crisis of 2020, you know, they've been going down, getting below seven, getting below five. And then by the, the time the COVID crisis comes along, they're, they're basically, you know, the, the, the Fed funds rate is not much above zero. So banks need to add a couple points to that to make money for their costs and for their profit. So you get up to like two, three percent mortgages. Now they're starting to rise. I think they will rise. Uh, but I mean, when we think of all the problems people have buying a house or even paying increasing rents, because somebody owns that rental property. And, and yet here we've got these absolutely ahistorical low interest rates. I mean, my God, what would America look like tomorrow if interest rates on mortgages or, or car loans, God forbid, were 10 or 15 percent? It'd be an absolute devastation. Uh, I mean, this is, this is right. so scary to me. Yeah, and, and that was some of the, the statistics that um, Alex Pollock brought up in his, his talk. He was saying, uh, for example, you know, and I, get, I, I knew these numbers vaguely, but I never put two and two together, that the Fed's got like $41 billion in shareholder equity. Because, again, folks, the, the Federal Reserve, you know, do with this fact what you will, but it is, you know, nominally a, a private institution that has shareholders. And it's got like nine trillion in assets, give or take. And so he was saying, so they're levered two hundred and seventeen to one. And with you know, with other institution, you know, other banking, they even being levered thirty-five to one is considered alarming. And so yes, in gen and, and they're sitting on fixed income, they're sitting on you know treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. So yeah, you mm -hmm. that he he was arguing that you know when we, amidst everything else, it's in other words, it's not merely because I think a lot of people have said, oh, with all the outstanding treasury debt the federal government doesn't want treasury rates to rise too much. Right. And so maybe they're leaning on the Fed, but at the same time, the Fed's an owner of a bunch of this stuff. And there's a sense and you know, if they raise rates, they don't have much capital there. So they could technically be insolvent. And I did a piece for Mises.org way back. Um, there, the Fed did some strange accounting gimmick several years ago where they changed it that in, in case their equity went negative, it was just going to be that they were going to owe the, you know how the Fed remits its excess earnings to the treasury. Mm -hmm. They were going to just, the way they were going to handle it is not show that they had negative equity. And so that they'd be insolvent is they were going to show that the, the excess earnings they owed to the treasury were negative, And then they would just work that off over time. <laughs> so right. that, that was, it was a weird little thing. You know what I mean? So I'm reading into the, the re so that's clearly what they did. Like that was a rule change they made a while ago. And then, you know, some of us were speculating, you know, like on zero hedge and whatever that are they doing that? Because in case interest rates rise and then, you know, they they become insolvent that technically they don't have to report it as such. So so who knows? But it, it was just a funny way that they were going to on their asset side jigger things so that, you know, they, they technically wouldn't have liabilities higher than their assets. Um, so, yeah. And, and what what Alex Pollock was it was was saying was just in general, he was just running through numbers, just even a few uh, points rise you know, could translate into hundreds of billions of dollars of losses in terms of market value of the assets that just the Fed owns. And so that's, it, it is an interesting situation amidst all the other problems with it that you, you know, you want, oh, you want an independent Fed and there's, you know, the idea that they're setting monetary policy based on what's good for the common interest. That's a little bit awkward if they're sitting on eight, nine trillion dollars worth of bonds. Yes. And we should point out the Fed is, is, takes pains to point out the interest it pays to the treasury. That's one of their big selling points. We actually make money, you know, we, uh, and we remit that to the treasury. So they're very proud of that. Um, 
Now, talking a little bit about Fannie and Freddie, I thought it was interesting. I didn't know, but Alex Pollock pointed out, that it was actually in the 60s during, under LBJ, uh, President Johnson didn't like the deficits he was incurring uh, prosecuting the Viet the Vietnam War. So one thing they did was they took Fannie and Freddie, which were creations of the New Deal period in the 30s for housing, to back housing. They took the, the books of Fannie and Freddie off the federal government, the federal treasury's books, so that those deficits wouldn't show up in LBJ's annual deficit for political reasons. Um, so Fannie and Freddie back about 62% of all mortgage loans in the United States. So again, we're not talking about a pure market phenomenon. But I, I went back and looked at their uh, at the legislation. You know, so they were created to, to provide. Well, Fannie was created first, and then Freddie later to provide liquidity, stability, and affordability in U.S. housing markets. So, li- liquidity, yes. Uh, I'm not so sure about stability and affordability. And yet, e- even after all this mucking about, these GSEs, this you know almost zero interest rate policy from the Fed, we we still have a country of people who are nervous and upset about housing, unable to afford, unable to sell, to to save for a down payment. And yet, on the other side of it, Wall Street Journal wrote, ran an article about this just last week. You know, it's the older generations, the baby boomers and above, feeling fat and happy. Uh, Their houses are going up. And it's not like all this money, Bob, is flowing out of equity markets, and into housing, and that explains everything, that people are worried about the economy, and so they want to buy stuff like mm-hmm. commodities or land and houses as opposed to, you know, I mean, yeah, the, the markets have taken some losses, but we don't see billions or trillions flowing out of them. So it's just, it, it's a really bizarre time. And so on the one hand, if this isn't really a bubble, that this is the new reality, and if commodities and land and houses are going to do better than stocks in a heavily inflationary environment, gee whiz, you, you kind of want to tell a 20-something to shoehorn their way into uh, a how, that, you know, into qualifying for a house, especially with interest rates still relatively low but rising. But the, the flip side is that w- what if you're encouraging them to get into something and they, they end up holding the bag on some wildly overvalued house? Scary. Yeah, there's a lot of competing forces, and and you know you mentioned a minute ago you, you were looking over those thirty-year uh, mortgage rates and how they've plummeted, and so that that was part of it that you know in the you might remember this Jeff in the you know two thousands and especially after the crash happened, a bunch of us were making the case that the Fed had a lot to do with it, and then even some free market economists were saying, oh no, th- you know that's a myth, it has not, and it was like just step by step, okay, just the drop in mortgage rates alone could explain a lot of the rise in price. You know, I mean, that's a standard accounting that, you know, the, the lower the mortgage rate for the same given monthly payment that you're making out of pocket, you can, quote, buy a bigger house or buy more house. You know, you can afford a bigger ticket price if the, if the, if you have a lower mortgage rate. And so that, you know, that was interesting. And then they, they switched to, or another card they played was, oh, well, yes, mortgage rates coming down have a lot to do with it, but the Fed doesn't control it. That's because of the Asian savings glut. So, you know, again, just explaining, oh, the reason our economy was so bad and we had this boom bust cycle was because those rascally Asians just saved too much of their income, which, you know, to me, prima facie is crazy to blame mm-hmm. somebody saving on your economic problems. But also the, the numbers just didn't work out right that, the, you know, the, the savings rate over there was lower during the peak years of the housing bubble here and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, you're, you're right in terms of like right now, is it a good thing on the one hand? 
if you think the dollar is going to crash at some point, then to have your payments locked in for 30 years is presumably, you know, your weight, your nominal wage or salary eventually will rise. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, if, if, if bread becomes $20 a loaf 20 years from now, well then making your $1,200 mortgage payment won't be so bad. Right. Um, but then like you say, on the other hand, in the short term, if, if this is a huge real estate bubble that pops, you're going to be stuck for a while underwater. So it, it again, it's, it's hard to, Probably it's the kind of thing where if you think you're going to stick in a certain area for a long time, it would make sense to go ahead and, and lock that in if you agree with you know our, our views in general about what the Fed's been doing with monetary policy. But other than that, it gets, it gets pretty hard to know, you know, do you want to stay nimble or do you want to try to take advantage of locking in a fixed flow of dollar payments that you owe somebody if the dollar's going to crash? Well, that's just it. Houses are different than other investments in that you live in them. And you generally can only have one at a time unless you're wealthier. So that puts a real drag on you if you lose your job or you'd like to move to another job. You know, you have to really care about the underlying price of your house in a way you don't have to care about your stock portfolio. You just sell it or keep it, you know, do what you want to do. Uh, But before we wrap up, I want to touch on this temporal element. We talk about higher and lower order goods in economics. We talk about the temporal stages of production. So if there's not enough houses in the United States, which I, apparently there are not because they keep going up even when the population's not growing, uh, we need to build more. The problem is, is that, you know, even a big developer, there's some huge developers in this country, um, especially out in California. You'll, you'll know some of the big home developer companies, uh, so if they, if you want to buy a huge piece of land for a new housing development, you know, you have to go through a lot of environmental and zoning and regulatory issues to do that. Then you might have to clear the land, get rid of the trees, the rocks, whatever. Then you have to hire architects and contractors and subcontractors, and then you have to build uh, the units or the standalone houses, whatever it might be, or a big condo high rise downtown in some city. Imagine the regulatory nightmare behind that. Uh, and all that, you know, in the best case scenario, Bob, it, I guess even for simple condos, something that's a year uh, or more. So th- there's a temporal element to this that we're asking uh, people to take some risks in even developing new stock. Right. So the, on the just the physical construction side, yes, housing, it, it takes longer, you know, to construct a new housing or, or apartment unit than it does to give somebody a haircut for sure. So there's that. And then also too, just that it's a long lived good. So like when I'm trying to explain Austrian business cycle theory to a lay audience, the, the, and explain how certain goods are more sensitive to interest rates than others. The, the example I always pick is an apartment unit. Like you imagine someone building an apartment unit and he has a forecast of what rents are going to be like the next 30 years and whatever. And there the interest rates really, you know, once you, you spend a million dollars to build the thing and then you know, you get a flow of whatever, $150,000 in net income over, over time, you need to know what's the relevant discount rate to decide, is this worth doing or not? You know, so it's, so that, that's one of the reasons that, yeah, so it's the, the construction lag, but also once it's up and running, you don't just sell it and then move on. Or if you, even if you do what the person's willing to pay for it is based on, you know, a long mm-hmm. temporal element as well. So, so yeah, that's, that's partly why when it comes to the fed tinkering with interest rates, that real estate and housing are, are so sensitive to it because they are such long-lived. They provide a flow of services well into the future. Yeah, and I can tell you, 
you know, as far as my property tax bill goes, my house is going up every year, but my house is getting worse every year. <laughs> the roof, uh, mm-hmm. the air conditioning units. I mean, this is this is such a disconnect. And as far as this temporal element goes, um, I, I'm not sure what what the future holds, but I do know that a, a hell of a lot of businesses in housing or, or otherwise have been using a very, very, very low discounted rate. Uh, in their business models and plans over the past 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And if that's going up, if that, you know, if that can't last, I mean, at some point, people just have to understand if, if businesses can go get a safe 5% in a U.S. Treasury, they sure as hell aren't going to loan you money to buy a house at 4%. Right, so right. Th- this is where we're going. And, you know, a couple of years ago, Fannie and Freddie announced that they would begin to back even so-called jumbo mortgage loans of up to a million dollars. I think maybe we can close the show on saying, I'm pretty sure that in the very near future, a million dollar mortgage is not going to be considered jumbo anymore. It's going to be considered par for the course. So all that said, a lot going on with housing. Uh, We're going to link to Alex Pollock's speech. Please take a moment, take 45 minutes this weekend to give it a listen because you're going to come away a lot more informed about what's going on out there. We want to thank Bob Murphy for his time today. We want to thank all of you for tuning in to the Human Action Podcast, and we will see you next week. Okay, I think that's Jeff and Bob next week for another show. But in the meantime, you can find a world of content like this at Mises.org.